Welcome, superhumans. Today, we venture into the cosmos, unearthing profound questions and possibilities that challenge our very understanding of our place in the universe. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. As the age-old question persists, are we alone? Humanity stands on the precipice of potentially groundbreaking discoveries. Yet, many in the scientific community have hesitated to probe deeper. But our guest today is not one to shy away from the monumental and, at times, controversial questions that have forever captured human imagination. Joining us once again is the renowned Professor Avi Loeb. He is the head of the Galileo Project, the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative, and the former and longest-serving chair of Harvard's astronomy department. He is the astrophysicist who's never hesitated to venture where few have dared. In his previous appearance on our show, we delved into his groundbreaking 2021 New York Times bestseller, Extraterrestrial, where he boldly proposed the theory that the interstellar object Oumuamua might be a beacon from an advanced alien civilization. Today, we turn the pages of his latest book, Interstellar. Not only does Professor Loeb shed light on the tangible preparations for potential encounters with extraterrestrial civilizations, but he also explores what it might mean for us as a species to venture beyond the stars. Could we indeed become an interstellar civilization? And as we stand on the brink of such awe-inspiring possibilities, what philosophical, cultural, and existential implications arise? Professor Loeb, with his vast repertoire of over 800 scientific papers and numerous accolades, including being named one of the 25 most influential people in space by Time magazine, brings to our discussion not just the science and the facts, but also the curiosity, passion, and drive that makes him a pioneering figure in astrophysics. As we embark on this journey through space, time, and the very fabric of our being, prepare to redefine your understanding of our universe and our potential role in it. Are we truly on the verge of becoming not just interstellar travelers, but interstellar communicators? Let's find out. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Avi, welcome back to the Superhumanized podcast. I'm so excited you're back on the show. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to finding superhumans out there. Actually, your show will be even more successful in the future, I hope. I hope so too. And I have no doubt there's still a lot of discoveries to be made by you. Before I hit record, you actually shared with me that you have some really exciting no news, which we can't go too deep into right now. but can you give us a teaser, please? We went on an expedition to the Pacific Ocean with very little chances of uh, success. We were after tiny particles and less than a millimeter in size, uh, the head of a pin or a grain of sand, if you want to imagine. These are dust particles, basically, that were molten off uh, an interstellar meteor, the first one recognized about a decade ago, January 8, 2014, by U.S. government satellites. And what was special about this meteor was it moved very fast. In fact, uh, going back in time, it was moving at 60 kilometers per second outside the solar system. So it came from beyond the solar system, outside of our backyard. And moreover, it was moving at 60 kilometers per second, meaning faster than... 90%, 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun relative to the local frame of the galaxy. 
And then when it entered the Earth's atmosphere, it was able to maintain its integrity down to the lower atmosphere where the stress on it was higher than all space rocks that we have witnessed before. So it had material strength tougher than even iron meteorites, which make up 5% of all the space rocks. So it was tougher than all rocks, 272 of them that were cataloged by NASA over the past decade. And the question is, if it was faster than usual and also tougher than all space rocks, could it have been a Voyager-like meteor? In other words, when Voyager leaves the solar system and goes into interstellar space, it might one day, billions of years from now, collide with another planet like the Earth and show up as a meteor in the sky of unusual material strength and and, and speed because it was propelled. And uh, so we went to the Pacific Ocean to figure out what's out there. And the these tiny particles that were molten off the object when it was exposed to the immense heat from the fireball that was created as a result of its friction with air, they landed on the ocean floor more than a mile deep. And they were spread across a region of 10 kilometers in size. So just think about trying to get uh, millimeter-sized particles, uh, basically dust, from the bottom of the ocean more than a mile deep across a region of maybe seven miles long. That sounded like a hopeless task, but we said without searching, we will not find anything. The only way to find something is to go out there. And the amazing thing is we used the sled with magnets on both sides and we dragged it on the ocean floor across that region where the meteor exploded. And we found it. We found an excess of those molten droplets. They're called spherules because they look like spheres. We found the more along the meteor path, roughly double the amount that you find anywhere else. So basically the meteor added spherules to the reservoir that exists everywhere from past events. And then when we analyze them in the laboratory, we are able to tell what the composition is. And the first question is whether the composition is different than solar system materials. So in that way, we can demonstrate that this, uh, these spherules relate to an object that came from outside the solar systems. That would be completely independent of the velocity measurement by the U.S. government. So all I can say is we have exciting results. I cannot give you the details. But then the second question, of course, uh, that is more difficult is whether the object was manufactured technologically. And obviously, it's easiest to answer this question if you find a big piece of the object. And we didn't use a technique that allows us to find a big piece. We use these small magnets that collected uh, small magnetic particles from the object. But then um, if we find that the object is indeed from outside the solar system, we will go there again. And then in that case, we will use a different, in, different set of instruments, for example, a sonar that images the ocean floor and tries to look for big pieces. And clearly you can tell the difference between a piece of a rock and a technological gadget that may have buttons on it. And in my last class at Harvard of the spring semester, I asked my students, if we find a, a gadget with buttons on it, should we press a button? <laughs> and the half of the class said, no way, don't do that, because it may endanger all of us. And the other half said, please do. We are really curious to see what will happen. And then one of the students asked me, what would I do? And I said, I will bring it to a laboratory to examine it and then decide whether to engage with it or not afterwards. Yes. And you're also talking. So I'm really excited. You said two weeks from now, two weeks from the day that we're recording this, you're going to publish a paper on your findings. So I'm literally chomping at my nails. I can tell you are extremely excited. <laughs> so thank you for giving us this teaser. I understand that at this time we can't go into further detail However, we can do a deep dive on your new book, which, I mean, your previous book, Extraterrestrial, was a huge international bestseller. It got talked about 
everywhere in the media and also cause a shift in, pers- in perspective. Your new book, Interstellar, dives deep into the implications of humanity's potential encounters with extraterrestrial civilizations. And, you know, if we look at the past two years, we've had some rapid development. In June of 2021, which you also mentioned in your book, the U.S. Department of Defense delivered what is now called the Pentagon Report to Congress, basically confirming that military pilots have seen and photographed what's now called UAP, that these objects are real, and we don't know what they are. And just in the last weeks, we have witnessed a bipartisan push by Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and also Senator Mike Rounds to declassify government records related to unidentified anomalous phenomena and UFOs. We're clearly living in a new era. And similarly to the Copernican Revolution, how it upended our understanding of our place in the universe, how do you see our current era in relation to such a profound shift in perspective? Yeah, the amazing thing is we are on the path to collecting evidence that may tell us whether we have a partner, a neighbor in our cosmic street. And of course, the way to do that is by going out to our backyard and looking whether there are any tennis balls that were thrown by a neighbor or any uh, objects that came from the street that may indicate the nature of the neighbor. And so far, we were isolated, just like an isolated family. And if you find a tennis ball, you might want to join your family and tell them, look, we have neighbors, because that will change their lifestyle. They might decide to close off the curtains if they want privacy. They might decide to go out and speak with a neighbor and learn something new because the neighbor may be more knowledgeable. And very often, if the neighbor is much more accomplished, in our case, technologically, for example, it will inspire us for a better future. We will realize that we are all on the same boat, the earth sailing through the ocean of space. And rather than fighting each other or trying to feel superior relative to each other, we should all work together towards a better prosperous future. I think it will be a wake-up call to humanity that often when you meet a smarter kid on your in your class, you get inspired. Some people get intimidated, but I see it as an opportunity to learn and be better. So that's my hope. That's my book, Interstellar. It talks about the implications for humanity. Another way to think about the title of my book is it may be related to the paper that I discussed before that will be coming out in a few weeks. We have to wait and see what the content of the paper is. But <laughs> but uh, the book obviously talks in a broader sense about the implications. And the question, the fundamental question is whether we, we learn what is in our cosmic neighborhood first from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, the way I did in the expedition, or from politicians in Washington, D.C., And the thing that happened in the meeting at the House of Representatives, where there were three eyewitnesses, one of which was David Grush, who said that he spoke with 40 eyewitnesses and that are involved in programs for retrieval and reverse engineering of alien spacecraft. And the good news is he promised to give the contact details of those individuals to Congress people. And therefore, within the coming months, we might hear more details Or if we don't hear anything within a year, we will know that this story is fabricated, has nothing to it. So it's really all about evidence. And it's quite possible that the U.S. government has the evidence and they were hiding it because they gave it to corporations that never report back what these things are or never make sense of them. It's like the relationship between a psychiatrist and the patient. The psychiatrist will never resolve the problems of the patient because otherwise uh, they don't get paid if they solve it. So in the same way, corporations might not uh, provide insights as to whatever the government delivered for decades because they're getting paid for not delivering. And on the other hand, I think anything coming from interstellar space should be shared with all humans because it doesn't care about national borders. In fact, it may have started the journey very likely before earthlings before humans came to exist just a few million years ago. If this journey took billions of years, they we were not around, we were not in mind. Obviously, nations have nothing to do with this trip. So it should be scientific knowledge that is shared with everyone. And if scientists will get access to this, whatever the information the government has, 
there is a better chance that we'll get to the bottom of it because then the best minds will examine the evidence and figure out what it means. Yes, agreed 100% Avi. And in your book, you mentioned it so beautifully, you say the universe is knocking on our door. And as we're just preparing to open it right now, we're talking about the possibility of going to Mars, of going to Venus, going to the moon again. And yet there is still this cloak of secrecy over what you just mentioned. There's not a collaboration between governments. There's not an international collaboration between scientists. What do you think, aside from transparency and politics and policies and scientific global collaboration, what do you think are the most urgent steps humanity needs to take in the next decade in response to this knocking on our door? The most important thing is it should become a topic of conversation within the mainstream of science. There is no reason to ignore it because the government takes it seriously. The public is extremely interested. So it's the civil duty of scientists to engage. And then as of now, I'm trying to bring it to the mainstream, but I get attacked. I, I get pushback. And this is just surprising because all that we are trying to do is collect evidence that will shed light on it. For example, within the Galileo project that I'm leading, we have the first observatory operating already at Harvard University, looking at the sky 24-7 in the infrared, optical, radio, and audio. And they were using machine learning software to figure out whether we're looking at birds, balloons, drones, airplanes, or something else. So that's a scientific approach using data to guide us and computer algorithms. Now, this project is funded by private donations, but that's not really the issue. I'm not taking away money from any other subject in uh, that is popular in science. But at the same time, we get a lot of pushback from people saying within academia that this is ridiculous, it's not worth the time. Even when I went to the expedition, my colleagues would say, why would you do that? You're wasting money. And I said, look, I'm not asking you to do anything. You can sit back and relax. I'm doing the heavy lifting and I'm just seeking evidence to see what we find there. That is the scientific process. And the amazing thing is we found something. So the point is, uh, there is this circular argument that goes along the lines of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And the people that are making those claims are not seeking evidence at all. They are pushing back against those like myself and the Galileo Project who are seeking the evidence. Even the process of seeking the evidence appears to be controversial. Why should it be? After all, it's the way science operates. It's obviously a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then you ask yourself, why would people have such an emotional reaction to a subject that should be in the mainstream of science, more so than the search for dark matter that has very little implications for our daily lives, yet billions of dollars are spent on it. The mainstream of uh, theoretical physics for several decades is engaged with extra dimensions that we haven't seen. This is a complete speculation, just mathematical gymnastics, which is accepted by everyone engaged in it, and moreover celebrated as the frontier of physics, even though there is no evidence for it. Even people that popularize science like Brian Greene or Neil deGrasse Tyson would say, oh, this is the frontier of... It's not the frontier of physics if there is no evidence for it. Physics is about reality. There needs to be a reason for us to believe that there are extra dimensions. And the way to believe in it is if there is an experiment that convinces us that there is something beyond the three dimensions that we know about. Yet this is being talked about for decades as the mainstream of theoretical physics when there is no evidence. But then I'm going to an expedition to collect new evidence on an object that look an looks anomalous from the US government uh, satellite data, or I was working on Oumuamua, which looked anomalous relative to space rocks, and that appears to be controversial. So something is wrong in the way academia operates. And you ask yourself, why is it? It's, you know, it touches a nerve in our existence to admit that we might not be the smartest kid on the block. Okay, so we wanted to be at the center of the universe, for millennia, and then it turns out that we are not, okay? And then uh, the only thing left for us to believe is that maybe there is nobody out there, so we are really important intellectually. But my point is, it's quite likely because if you look at the Sun-Earth system, that there are billions of such systems in the Milky Way galaxy alone, 
it's quite likely that the dice was rolled and technology emerged in those other planets before us because most stars formed billions of years before the sun. So we came to the cosmic play just over the past few million years, and um, we are not at the center of stage. And so if you come to a play at the end of the play and you are not at the center of the stage, the play is not about you. And if you want to learn more about the, the meaning of the play or what is it about, you better ask other actors. You stick them and check with them what the play is about. And for some reason, there is this tendency not to search for other actors because then we would realize that the play is not about us. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned it before, Avi, the skepticism from parts of the scientific community regarding the evidence for extraterrestrial civilizations is strange, especially when you compare it to other theories like string theory or multiverses. And there's something else I'd like to offer as food for thought. This is actually does not come from my brain. It comes from a movie, Thrive, it is called. And a scientist there, he actually offered the theory that what you just also asked, so why is there such a problem with this? Obviously, there's the part where it might be psychologically very hard for a lot of us to acknowledge, wow, we're not at center stage. We're not the crown of creation. This gentleman whose name escapes me right now, he said, if we acknowledge the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence, and in that way, also of alternative means of harnessing energy, this also would put in question a trillion-dollar industry, the energy industry as we know it on Earth. And that obviously could be a big threat to quite some actors on this earthly stage. Something I found interesting and food for thought. Um, of course. And uh, my point of view is that we need a, a role model that is better than our politicians or entertainers or corporations. And if we realize that someone else did better in terms of the technologies they developed, in terms of the fact that they reached our doorstep before we reached their doorstep, we might get inspired. And um, I see that as a transformative moment. Now, of course, we can bury our head in the sand. That would not be a sign of intelligence. So it's okay if people prefer not to be intelligent. That's their choice. But uh, on the ship, I was jogging at dawn, uh, at sunrise every morning, as I do on land. And there was a filming crew there. And the director asked me, they decided to film me jogging one morning. And he asked me, Avi, it looks like you're running. Are you running away from something or towards something? And I said, both. I'm running away from some of my colleagues who have strong opinions without seeking evidence. And I'm running towards a higher intelligence in interstellar space. Yes, that's also something that is a quote that opens your book where you, I can't paraphrase it correctly now, but where you're basically saying you're looking to learn to be inspired from those that are more evolved, more knowledgeable than us, so we can know where we're going, what we actually exactly. could be capable of. Yes. Exactly. Uh, something that I'd like to get your perspective on a little more is talking about greater transparency and coordination amongst governments and scientists. How do you see this manifesting in real world terms, especially given the geopolitics and competition for resources and knowledge? Okay, it's very simple. If the Congress people end up contacting those individuals that Grush mentioned to them, we don't know who they are, and they end up finding that it's real, that let's say there are some corporations in possession of materials, then they can force those corporations to either re return the materials to government or share them with scientists. Because, you know, if it has been like that for decades and they haven't really done anything with it, it's really a shame for it to be hidden from view when scientists can make sense of whatever is there. So I would love to help government figure out what it means, given everything I know about physics. But if it's hidden, that's not possible. So I can see a situation where if there is anything behind it and the materials are brought to light in terms of scientists like me able to access them, 
then we will be able to, first of all, understand what they mean. And second, the, the implications from whatever was found. What does it mean for the future of humanity? That would be an important societal exercise because it obviously will change our view about our place in the universe, how we should treat each other. If there is someone else out there that is quite more sophisticated than we are, then we should rethink the way we deliberate here on earth. For example, we spend $2 trillion every year on military budgets, and perhaps we should reallocate it instead of fighting each other to space exploration. That sounds like a refreshing idea that I calculated that with this budget, we can send a probe towards every star in the Milky Way galaxy, billions of them, within this century. It will be a more intelligent way to behave rather than the zero-sum games of uh, wars that we were engaged in since we were uh, animals back a few million years ago. The, obviously, the uh, fighting for food for territory was part of the animal kingdom because the resources were limited. But, but what science brings to the table, first of all, you recognize that there is much more real estate out there in, the, in space than there is here on Earth. So why fight for these limited resources on such a tiny piece of rock that we happen to be born on, we can explore space. But more importantly, it's not zero sum, it's actually an infinite sum game. Science uh, brings you knowledge that uh, enriches everyone, and then you are not losing anything out of it, you're just gaining. If you realize that, for example, the Earth moves around the sun, then you can develop a space program that will bring you to the moon or to Mars because you have a realistic view of your neighborhood. Whereas if you keep insisting, oh, we are alone, there is nothing out there, we are really the pinnacle of creation, you might not realize that there is a lot for you to learn. And when you talk about zero-sum game, Avi, of course, these zero-sum game ideas and models that we've been raised on that we're often living as our, this is our paradigm of life, are fear-based and lack-based. And it's also testimony to a certain level of immaturity that humans still have as a species. So my hope is that there's a great awakening going on in many parts of the world and individuals that the number of the people who are awakening and shifting the way they think and the way they live, that this may cause a greater wave to ripple through humanity with more openness, with more living based on curiosity and love and abundance. Exactly. We shall, yeah, we shall see. Talking about being in contact or gathering evidence of extraterrestrial civilizations, how do you envision the practicalities of our potential future interactions with actually not just objects, but extraterrestrial civilizations, given the vast, likely vast differences in technology, understanding, and also potentially intent? So first, we shouldn't imagine anything. When you go to a science fiction movie, obviously you're paying money and therefore you have expectations. Mm -hmm. However, if you watch the sky, you're not paying for anything. It comes your way. And the nature just brings you whatever is out there. And therefore, we should not have expectations. We should simply interpret whatever we see and we should seek the evidence. Now, as you said, space is vast. Cosmic time is huge. That's why when Enrico Fermi asked 70 years ago, where is everybody? That uh, makes li little sense because he was not looking even through a telescope to check. And over the past, we found the first objects from interstellar space in our neighborhood. And uh, that means that you really need to develop special instruments that became available only over the past decade. It were the first two objects were the meteor that I mentioned, and then after that, Oumuamua, the football field size object that was discovered by a telescope in Hawaii. And uh, given that, it means that we should be more humble, not ask where is everybody, but how to find everybody. If you stand at home and say, I don't have a partner right, because I don't see anyone around me. Well, that's a, a fallacy because you have to go to dating sites. You have to look through your windows. You have to check your backyard. Maybe you have packages from someone else. You can't just stay at home and say, I, where is everybody? And that was the question that is still echoing from 70 years ago. And for 70 years, we've been engaged in looking for a radio signal, searching. That was the goal of SETI. 
But that is like waiting for a phone call. You need the counterpart to It's call you. And you may not be lucky in that sense, because uh, maybe there is no synchronization. They are not reaching out to you at the time that you're waiting. But if you were to search for packages in your backyard or your mailbox, that's a completely different approach because the senders may be dead. But the packages keep accumulating. They may have expired. Most of the objects in interstellar space may be trash, just like plastics in the ocean. And they keep accumulating over time because they're bound by gravity to the Milky Way. And mm. uh, of, over billions of years, who knows? There might be a lot of trash out there. And perhaps this uh, meteor was one a piece of s- space trash and or more and more the same. And the only way to find out is to study them, to collect as much data as possible on them. And I think that's the way for better knowledge, not to have a prejudice, not to say we need extraordinary claims. We need extraordinary evidence to support extraordinary claims. But then without you're not seeking it, then there is no way by which you will find something new. And that has been the practice by most, by the mainstream as of now. And I think we need to move beyond that. And The U.S. government actually is the first organization to notice something unusual in the sky because that's the day job to monitor the sky for any national security threat. And in the process of doing that, they might notice things that are unusual. It will not be astronomers because the telescopes that astronomers use focus on a small portion of the sky and they are trained on very distant sources. So They, if a bird flies overhead, they would not notice it. That's why in the Galileo project, we had to build a new set of observatories that monitor the entire sky all the time. And that hasn't been done in astronomy before. Mm. And something else to consider, you mentioned the tantalizing possibility of life as we do not know it in a dark universe. How can we envision this type of life and what would it actually take for us to detect or interact with it? Yeah, obviously we are familiar with what we had experience with. And so far we just experienced life on Earth. And when we go to Mars and search for life, it's an interesting question whether we will find the same type of life as we find on Earth in terms of the DNA structure. And and if it is the same, there are two possibilities. Either the, this is the preferred channel for life or that life was transferred between Mars and Earth. And it's possible that life started on Mars and was transferred through rocks to Earth because Mars cooled before Earth. And then at the middle of its lifespan, Mars lost its atmosphere and liquid water on the surface and then became a desert as it is now. And But it's possible that we all started on Mars and life as we know it. And When Elon Musk wishes to die on Mars, that's just like wishing to go back to your childhood home and dying there in a oh, way. I need to pick your brain a little bit more here, Avi, because this is funny. You're saying that Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars is actually a death wish. This is your, what is your opinion on oh, him? Yeah, Simon? first I wanted to say that in order to survive on the surface of Mars, you really need to build the protection because... There is, it's very dangerous out there. There are cosmic rays, energetic particles that damage the human body. You can't survive for more than a few years in a spacesuit. You have to go underground. That would be the best protection or build some infrastructure. But the simplest is to go to a cave. We started in caves here on Earth, the prehistoric caves that were populated because as a protection against the weather, for example. But when we go to Mars, it's a protection against cosmic rays, energetic particles, because there is no atmosphere there to protect humans. And it's also a protection against the variation, extreme variations in temperatures on the surface of Mars between day and night that could be hundreds of degrees. You can, These are huge variations that are difficult to survive. And if you go underground, they are moderated. And so actually there are caves. These are lava tubes in, on Mars that were created by volcanic flows. And what I'm most curious about is that if we enter those caves to live in them, will we find the prehistoric paintings on their walls? Because it's possible that intelligent life or so advanced forms of life predated the analogous forms on Earth by a factor of two. So if they arose on Mars 
a few billion years before they did on Earth, like on Earth more recently, but there, let's say, at the middle of Mars lifespan, then they may have existed in those caves. And we could look for them, for their skeletons, for their for any paintings on the walls. That was never attempted by NASA, I must say. Nor was it attempted to drop liquid water on a, on a, on sand on Mars and see if anything comes to life. Nor was it attempted to check the ice or the water ice on Mars and look for any biological material in it. Just recently, it was found in the permafrost of Siberia that the, there were worms that they were revived by melting the ice. And after 46,000 years, they came to life and then they died, of course, after their typical lifespan. But if those worms were able to survive 46,000 years, maybe something survived on Mars. We don't know. So the ice was never examined for biology. So I must say NASA is working really slowly, like any bureaucratic organization. So maybe some uh, private uh, exploration that is funded by individuals might make bigger advances in the near future. But altogether, the reason I went to discuss Mars is that even within the solar system, we don't know if life as we know it prevails and that Mars will be the first place to check. But beyond that, who knows what happens on other planets and what kinds of life may exist there. And once the life gets to technology, then obviously the sky is the limit because right now we're developing artificial intelligence and we see exponential growth in the performance of AI systems on a yearly timescale. And just think about continuing that for a thousand years or a million years. We just cannot imagine what it might become. No, and I think this exponential growth, the development in technology and science, we're going to see things just in the next one or two years that are going to be so mind-blowing, even to us that we're living through this age. And something else that I think is going to change rapidly, also due to the work you're doing, are some of the theories that we're going to develop. You have Einstein's theories that have stood the test of time in a sense, but you actually suggest that it's time to find something new about space-time and gravity. And I would like to know from you, Avi, what are the most promising directions or hypotheses you're excited about in this realm? Okay, so one way to get a jump start would be to consult with a more advanced culture that has scientists who know the answers to questions that we haven't been able to answer. The first question on my list is, what was there before the Big Bang? Because uh, that encapsulates also the unification of quantum mechanics and gravity. We don't have a theory that is predictive about going back in time and figuring out what preceded the Big Bang. And uh, I would like to know that because it uh, touches on our cosmic roots, where we came from. Uh, that's the starting point. And it's really puzzling because Einstein's theory of gravity is unable to tell us it breaks down at the singularity of the Big Bang. And we need an extension of it that includes quantum mechanics to figure out. And maybe they did figure it out. And of course, if you do figure it out, there is a chance you might engineer a baby universe in the laboratory. And that's an idea that I'm toying with, whether an advanced technological civilization could be an approximation to God in the sense of being able to create a baby universe. Perhaps our Big Bang was initiated by scientists in white lab coats. And that, of course, will bring science and religion together in a very special way. The main difference, between, I should say, spirituality and the frontiers of science have a lot in common because both of them address the unknown. But they address it differently. In the context of religion, it's all about believing ideas. And the context of science, it's guided by evidence. And just think about it. Instead of hearing about stories, we will be able to actually observe data that gives us evidence that indeed there is a superhuman entity out there to touch again on your program title. And of course, uh, when Moses watched the burning bush uh, in the biblical story, the, that served as a miracle that convinced Moses to believe in God. But 
If I were there with the infrared sensors of the Galileo project, I could have advised Moses as to the temperature of the bush, the energy period time emitted by the bush, and that would have allowed me to tell Moses whether it's a natural phenomena or something created by a superhuman entity like he, he believed in. And it would have been his awe would have been much more substantiated. He was just looking at it and getting an impression. But with instruments, you can actually get a census as to whether you're looking at a natural phenomena that is familiar, like a bush burning, or really it's some unusual, or let's call it unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAP. <laughs> and that you can quantify with instruments. Yes. Absolutely. And what you just mentioned, a, a civilization so advanced that they could create a galaxy or a universe in basically in a lab. That is what you talk about in your book as you call it an A-type civilization. And when it when you were talking about us, humans, you liken us more, you put us more into a D-type civilization where actually you can see us as degenerative in a lot of ways, making life as we know it impossible off this planet due to our unevolved state. Yeah. So, so my hope is that the, indeed seeing a smarter kid on our block will inspire us. And of course, there are those people who are afraid of that. And even Stephen Hawking was arguing that it might pose a threat. Yes. I don't see it like that because I believe that we can only learn from a more advanced, more intelligent species. And natural selection in interstellar space favors the more intelligent species because they can survive longer. They have priorities that are set right not to engage in conflicts all the time on a piece of land that happens to lie between Ukraine and Russia. That is not an intelligent thing to do. Going to space is more intelligent. And I like the way you put this, Avi. A species that's collaborative would have a much higher likelihood of survival and evolving than a species who constantly bashes their heads into each other over... Exactly you know, what's actually small disputes compared to the bigger picture of what is out there and what could be achieved. Speaking of achievements, how do you envision the future of interstellar studies? Are there some technologies or methods that you believe will be pivotal? And also, sorry, I know this is a few questions in one. What kind of specific projects and initiatives are you currently working on? So as of now, most of our activities in space being motivated by national pride. Mm. You can see that in the space race between the United States, China, Russia, India. It's all about national pride. And uh, that is not the correct motivation. It should be about curiosity. It should be about figuring out whether there is life on Mars, all nations together working towards that goal, investing in resources. But instead, what is a lot of satellites being placed for espionage, ballistic missiles being constructed, and it's all about defending yourself against adversaries and placing a threat on them, or just a matter of showing off, going to a place that nobody went before just so that your citizens will be proud of it. And that's the most primitive sense of that we got from the jungle, right? Mm -hmm. the, basically showing off. I mean, you see it among chimpanzees, gorillas, everywhere. Peacocking. Yeah. And uh, it's not the most intelligent thing to do, actually working together towards a common goal that uh, will benefit all of us is the approach. And it should be driven by curiosity. That's the fundamental underlying principle that drives, is supposed to drive science. I'm saying it's supposed to drive science because when I went to the expedition, people told me, why would you do that? And those were people who call themselves scientists. So that I don't understand because if you're calling yourself a scientist, you should never, ever discourage another person from seeking evidence. That is against the definition of your profession. But yet you find it these days. And in a way, I got an email yesterday from someone somewhere who said that science lost its magic, that there is pushback against any deviation from the beaten path, lack of innovation the way it used to be. 
And this is unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. That's one of the fights that I'm fighting to bring it back. And I know that when I was on the ship that was fittingly called the Silver Star, I wrote the 43 diary reports on medium.com. And they were read by millions of people around the world and translated to Spanish. And I received a huge number of emails telling me how inspired people were by seeing how science is done. And then when I came back, people in academia said, how dare you talk about science before you publish the paper about the results? And I said, what do you mean? I'm communicating to the public that it's just a detective story, that you can make mistakes along the way, and all you're trying to do is seek the evidence, and that will guide you. And I was completely honest. If we didn't find spherules, I said, after the sixth day, when we didn't have them yet, I said, where are the spherules? I'm trying to be as honest as possible. But somehow it's seen as a a bad thing to do when you do science. And I think it's the other way around, because right now the public has this impression that science is an occupation of the elite because it's presented um, during press conferences as if the scientists are lecturers in a classroom telling the students about the knowledge that they're supposed to have. And it's more a detective story where the scientists make mistakes along the way. I don't think they would lose the glory. In fact, the public will connect better to science if it sees how science is done. And that was my goal throughout the expedition. And there will be a scientific paper coming out in a few weeks. I'm doing both. And it's just unfortunate that innovation is not promoted as it should in scientific quarters right now. I have a feeling that may change, Avi, especially also given the huge resonance that you personally experienced by how you let the public partake in your journey And just also our brains are hardwired for, if I may call it so, this type of storytelling. You root for the hero on his journey. You are (laughs) with him or with her as they fail and as they succeed. So I think it's a much more interesting, riveting way to actually share some of the discoveries and how they're made. And it'll change the perspective of many people. And I'm Glad you do not bow down to adversaries, but you're forging your own path. Something I really liked about your book, Avi, is also how in the first part you talk about practicalities, and the second part is it's it's philosophical, it's spiritual, and it really touches upon a lot of the things, the bigger, greater questions of humanity. And speaking about that, given the vastness, the unimaginable vastness and the age of the universe, how do you personally grapple with the paradox of feeling potentially both insignificant and at the same time part of something profoundly meaningful? Yeah, it's all about having the O, which used to be in the realm of um, religion, you know, that, but you can have it if you explore nature. I jog every morning at sunrise and I see ducks, birds, and I always, every sunrise is different. And if you pay attention to nature rather than insisting that you know what it is, it's not worth checking out what it is, then you realize that there is a lot for us to learn. And it, it it's not about us. It's not about me personally. It's more about being part of a bigger thing that is awe-inspiring. And it's just instead of focusing on the two-dimensional surface of this rock that we were born in, just look out and realize that there is so much going on out there in space that we are not aware of. And obviously, we need to collect more data, more evidence to figure it out. But we tend to close ourselves. We know that 83% of the matter in the universe is of substance that we have never figured out yet. We never witnessed it in the solar system. It's called dark matter. So that, again, teaches us modesty. We know so little. If we don't realize what 83% of the matter in the universe is, it's really all about uh, our ignorance as of now. And to me, just chipping off this ignorance, just learning more and more is the meaning of my life because then I can become part of a bigger thing rather than remain in the stone age of science where everything in the sky is stones, which is pretty much the theme of a paper written just a month ago when I came back from the expedition. It basically said, this meteor must be a stone because otherwise it wouldn't fit our model for stones. 
And the government data must be wrong, they said, by a factor of three. And I call that the stone age of science. And, and it's less inspiring, less uplifting. It's boring, frankly, to think that everything is stones. And it's not correct because we came up with the material from there and we found that it's not correct about these meteors. I'm saying allow yourself to discover new things because otherwise you would never discover them. And it's actually a thrill to appreciate what's out there. And my hope is to inject back this thrill. I should say that, like, for example, during the expedition, I got an email from a person who said, I read your diary reports and I had a stroke a few weeks ago and this gave me a meaning to my life to see how science is done. There is a sculptor who is making a huge sculpture, two meter in size right now about this research of mine. There is a playwright who wrote a play about it and the first performance will be in, a, in about a month. There, was, uh, there is, of course, a filming crew that went to the expedition is making a documentary about the research. There is a songwriter who wrote a song about my research. He won several uh, Grammys, Emmys, and Oscars. So apparently it touches a lot of people across the arts. And uh, I think they have a good sense that this is an exciting future that we should all wish for. But my surprise really is within academia, which is supposed to be blue sky oriented. The tenure system is supposed to give us peace of mind in terms of not worrying about job security. So why not encourage new knowledge? Why insist that we already know everything? And it's again, part of showing off. You can show off only if you know everything. If, you are, if your stature, your profession is such that you can say, I can explain anything. And if I cannot explain it, the data must be wrong, which is pretty much what these people that work on space rocks for decades are saying. I think the greatest teachers are also at the same time, always students, always curious. And your message, Avi, is clearly reaching such a great part of humanity and inspiring many humans. My final question to you is if you could give a direct message to an advanced civilization, what would it be? Give us a chance. Uh, show yourself to us so that we can get better. Don't give up on us. I know that we are disappointing in many ways, but we can do better. Just give us a chance. Beautiful. Avi, for people who would like to connect with you, learn more, of course, your new book, Interstellar, is out now as of the publication date of this podcast. That aside, how can they connect? Where can they learn more? Where can they reach you? So I have a blog, a place where I post essays routinely every few days on medium.com. And I also have a professional website at Harvard University. I don't subscribe to social media because I see it as a distraction I see it as a way to maintain uniformity of opinions of people belonging to tribes and not necessarily thinking for themselves. And as a result, I don't have any account on social media, but uh, you can reach out to me by email or by reading my essays. Excellent. Avi, thank you so much for joining us again on the Superhumanized podcast. I am super excited for in a couple of weeks when your paper comes out. I'm going to keep my eyes peeled on that and peeled on the skies above us. I have a feeling just like you do too, great and exciting things to come. Thank you so much for everything you do. And thank you for sharing your what's most precious, your time with us. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. <laughs>